you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Galatians chapter 5. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And we thank you, Father, that you are the God of endurance and encouragement. And so, Father, would you open up your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word this morning so that we may know that which we are to believe about you as well as that which you ask us to do. And as we do our duty, may it be a delight and done with a humble reliance upon Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are here at week 17 in our series of the Gospel according to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. And, um, you know, repetition is one of the keys of learning uh, for children, especially, but for all of us. And so that's why I most often repeat some of the same things over and over again so that hopefully uh, the grooves in our um, record will be cut such that we will remember these things. And, and one of the things I keep going back is, is in Mark's gospel, we, we, we wanted to know who is Jesus and, and Mark's gospel makes that clear. Here in Galatians, uh, the question is what is the gospel and, and Paul is, is helping us understand that more and more. And we know that the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ establishes and matures us, establishes and matures the church. And we've been reminding ourselves that the gospel is not just the, the, uh, the first few steps of the Christian life. It's, it's all the steps of the Christian life. It's a lifetime message. And it's the message that the unbeliever needs to hear, as we see in Acts chapter 2, as Paul preaches on Pentecost. But it's also the message that the believer needs to hear as Paul writes professing believers here in the church or churches in and around Galatia. Paul is planted this church. He's now responding to false teaching that is a clear and present danger to the church. It's threatening the gospel that he's proclaimed, that he's preached. He writes a letter, and in those first two chapters, it's an autobiography where Paul is defending his apostolic authority. In the next two chapters, he's He's defending, he's theologically defending the gospel message. And now in these last two chapters, he's putting into practice this um, gospel message. It's the practical application to the lives of the hearers. Indeed, beginning with chapter 5 is that move from theological exposition to practical theological application. And I think it's helpful, once again, to remind us of all the places that Paul could have started applying the truth of the gospel. He starts, his first point is freedom. His first point about freedom is this, and in verses 1 through 12, it can be summarized like this. Don't lose gospel freedom by slipping back into legalism and works righteousness. And then as we will see next week in in verses 13 through 18, he will say don't abuse gospel freedom. Because indeed, he's aware of 
of dangers on both sides to, to lose it and to abuse it. And he's going to address that. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the first six verses of Galatians 5 and freedom and faith. And we were not talking about the civil religion that's present in the United States where faith and freedom are combined with red, white, and blue and fireworks. No, we're looking at true freedom and true faith because it's not a civil religion, it's the true religion, the, the religion revealed in Scripture. We saw in verse 1 this standing firm in freedom and we saw, if you would, look with me to verse 1 again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We saw the grammar and the logic of the gospel, the declaration before the demand. What God has done before the call for what we are to do. And it's a, it's a grammar lesson that we can never get away from. Indeed, the very Ten Commandments reminds us of the, the grammar of the gospel because God is, talks about himself being the God who has freed you from bondage. Now live like this. And that's what Paul is reminding our, us about that. And in verses 2 through 5, it was distinguishing the faults from the true. Here he brings up the battle, as it were, between circumcision versus Christ. And he makes a move between addressing you to addressing we in terms of that hope that we have, that hope that we wait for. And then in verse 6, we looked at expressing through love a working faith. Indeed, last week, we spent the entire time looking at verse 6. We see, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We saw last week that it was not outward appearance, but outward action that counts. What counts? Well, it's not outward appearance one way or the other. It's not circumcision, nor is it uncircumcision. But what counts is outward action, the inward reality of faith working or being demonstrated through love. We saw that this word working, it's a literal, that, that faith energizes love. Neither religious moralism representing circumcision here, or circumcision representing religious moralism, nor licentious irreligion represented by uncircumcision can do this, can energize love. Why? Because both religion apart from Christ and irreligion are both essentially selfish and insecure. And selfishness and insecurity cannot produce love. Because at the heart of love is self-giving. At the heart of love is not selfishness, nor is it insecurity. But rather it is self Giving It is a donating of yourself. The faith that produces love is faith. Paul is trying to help us understand that rests upon the certainty of our righteousness in Christ and our welcome into the presence of the Father. Well, today we're going to look at the next few verses, verses 7 through 12. For those of you that pay attention to news, on Friday afternoon, there was a news conference at the Department of Justice, and the Assistant Attorney General announced that a federal grand jury had indicted 13 Russians and three Russian entities, accusing them of, quote, 
violating U.S. criminal laws in order to interfere with U.S. elections and political processes. These Russian efforts were described as, quote, information warfare, end quote, with, quote, the stated goal of spreading distrust against the candidates and the political system in general. There were also efforts beyond interfering with and attempting to influence the 2016 presidential election. Their goal was to, to sow discord and confusion. Now, something like this has been taking place in the Galatian church. There is discord, or the potential of discord, and there is confusion. And Paul is writing this letter to provide clarity. To, to blow in the wind of gospel truth, to, to move out the fog of confusion. Now in this section where Paul is saying, don't lose gospel freedom, he makes a personal aside, he's making a personal appeal, and in doing so, he has three words for the Galatian church. Again, the outline didn't come together until after it went to print, so... He has three words. The first, a word about the Christian life. Second, a word about the influence of false teachers and teaching. And third, a word about the offensive nature of the cross. Again, three words, a word about the Christian life, a word about the influence of false teaching and teachers, and finally, a word about the offensive nature of the cross. Join with me as I read verses 7 through 12. Of Galatians 5. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. First, a word about the Christian life, verse 7. Paul here provides a great illustration that he uses elsewhere about the Christian life. It's a race, and living the Christian life is likened to running. And we will see Paul, through his letters, help the reader, help the churches understand that the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's long. It's out there for the long haul. And there are obstacles. There are difficulties. There are trials. There are suffering. And there are hazards all along the way. I don't know many people who want to quit a sprint, right? Because it's over and done. I know lots of people. In fact, I've seen them. And I've been tempted to quit the marathon because it's long, it's difficult. At times, you don't think you can make it. This illustration 
Paul is using. Notice he's, he's talking about the Christian life as is running well. You're running this race. Indeed, Paul in chapter 2 says, I hope I haven't run this race in vain. He himself is using it. He sees himself as running the race. But notice, he, he, he uses this illustration to characterize the Christian life as what? Obeying the truth. Living the Christian life, he's, you're running well and you're obeying the truth. Not just knowing the truth, but practicing the truth. Not just the outward appearance of knowledge, but the outward action of putting that knowledge into practice. Because for those of you remember going through that book, On Being Presbyterian, uh, the author talks about Presbyterian beliefs, and the next chapter is Presbyterian practices. And so there's a relationship between the belief and the practice, between the doctrine and the life. Belief is made known through behavior. It is faith working through love. Paul is going to argue that once faith has taken root in the heart, it issues forth in obedience to the truth. The, the faith takes root in the heart and it produces the fruit. And we will see shortly in chapter 6, about, excuse me, chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. That is an outward working expression of that inward faith. I want to speak for a moment about the relationship between creed and conduct. Because creed is expressed in conduct and conduct is derived from creed. Uh, years ago, I can't remember uh, where it was. It was a conference probably somewhere. and I was probably drifting off to sleep, but I heard this speaker make the statement, um, what you believe is what you do. Everything else is just religious talk. Now, this author, this speaker was not arguing that, that we're saved by what we do, of course. But what he was saying is what we believe really does express itself in what we do. Otherwise, it's just talk. And I think uh, James, uh, the epistle of James, makes that clear about who goes into a, looks in a mirror and then walks away forgetting what he looks like. What we believe and how we behave cannot be separated there's an unbreakable bond between theological integrity and spiritual vitality. It's not some, some, simply something we know, it is also something we do. It's a theology that comes to life. Now from portraying the living of the Christian life as running a race and obeying the truth, Paul will now have a word about who it is who has hindered you. Now earlier in chapter 4 verse 15 he asked this, What then has become of the blessing you felt? The NIV translation says this, What has happened to all your joy? He will now answer the question he has asked about who hindered you or who cut in on you as you were running. And we see that in verses 8 through 10 as we see a word about false teaching and teachers. And we're going to look at three things, the origin, the effect, and the end. Well, where did it come from? Look with me as I read again, verses 8 through 10. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever it is. Well, where did this come from? Where did this false teaching, this this teaching that is hindering, that's an obstacle, that's in the way, where did it come from? Well, this persuasion, Paul is saying, is not from God. It's not from God. It's not from the one who calls you. It's another voice. It's another voice. It's a voice from the one who is deceiving you. Here's an echo once again of Genesis chapter 3. It's another voice that comes in. Did God really say? Did Paul really say that only Faith in Christ is necessary? Is that really what he said? Hey, Paul's a Jew. We can't get away from circumcision that fast. The origin is not from God. It's rather from someone who is deceiving. And here it's interesting because it takes two to deceive, as it were. The one deceiving and the one being deceived. So here persuasion is going to meet gullibility. Right? I, I'm really tired of this expression fake news. Um, because sometimes I don't know what it means. But you know we have a duty to evaluate something. If it's true or not. And, and, and that's true in the Christian life. Is this the truth of the gospel? Or is this some false thing that's attributed to the gospel. In a similar way, just in life, just because somebody says it, do you have to buy it hook, line, and sinker? I mean, is fake news so prevalent these days because people are so gullible? I mean, is there a market for the lies and the deceit? Well, of course, the answer is yes, and it was also in first century Galatia. So what's the effect What is the effect of this persuasion? What was it doing to the church? Well, here Paul quotes a common proverb that would have been very familiar in Jewish ears, maybe not so much in Gentile ears. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says this about sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians. Now, it could mean one teacher. You know, one teacher can really mess up a lot of stuff. Or, more likely, it means that there's a minor course change A minor course correction can have a a big effect because false teaching spreads and contaminates the whole church and eventually it spreads to the extent that it engulfs the church. The error of adding works to faith as the basis for justification strikes at the fundamentals of the gospel. And Paul will say in Galatians and elsewhere that there are two doctrines. There are two doctrines that are affected when you start adding something else to the work of Christ that's necessary. And one of those doctrines is the doctrine of the atonement. Is Christ substitutionary sacrificial death? Is that all that's needed? It also affects the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone, as he's been talking about thus far in Galatians. Two doctrines are not only affected, they would ultimately be destroyed if this false teaching is not addressed. Now, this is a great illustration I've heard many times, and those of you who are pilots out here, I think, will understand this better 
than even I will. What's the big deal about being one degree off course? What's the big deal? Well, for five minutes, it's probably not that big a deal, is it? Because you can, you're five minutes down the road, so to speak, and oh yeah, you need to be over here, you can get there. But how about an hour traveling at 362 miles per hour for 60 minutes, one degree off course, guess what? The airfield is not going to be in sight. And when I originally heard this illustration, it had to do with a problem in the Korean War with one of our Sabre F-86 fighter jets. Had a malfunctioning um, uh, compass, and he got off one course, one degree, big deal. Over time, he found himself north of the 38th parallel over enemy territory and shot down. One little degree over time, puts you over the enemy's territory and liable to get shot down. No big deal. Over time. Not in the sprint, but in the marathon. So there's the origin. It's not from God, but it's from the deceivers. The effect, it's spreading. It can infect the entire church if not addressed. And the end, look at again, verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever it is. Paul is confident of two things. Notice it is confidence in the Lord. Remember at the beginning of Philippians, he says um, that I am confident that he who began This good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is not confident in his own preaching. Paul is not confident in the Philippians' ability to make it. As it was in Philippians chapter 1. No, Paul is confident in the Lord. In the Lord. First, he's confident of two things. There will be an end to the false teachers, to the false teaching. They will be judged. They will bear the penalty. As we heard R.C. Sproul talk about, everyone is going to be before the judgment seat of the Lord. Everything is going to be uncovered. Everything hidden is going to be displayed. There will be a judgment. They will bear the penalty for their error. In fact, Paul will say in uh, Romans to not take vengeance because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will get his due. In Mark 9, you may remember that Jesus said, whoever teaches these little ones to sin, it'd be better if a millstone was put around their neck than for teachers to teach little ones to sin. Second, not only is Paul confident that this false teaching will ultimately be judged and that the false teachers will bear the penalty, he's confident that the Galatians will come around to being aligned to the truth. The Galatians, he believes and knows, will keep running. They will persevere to the end because God keeps them. God preserves them to be sure they have a role. They have a calling to run, to continue to run well 
but he's also confident in God's finishing what he begins. So Paul has had a word thus far about um, uh, the Christian life. He's had a word about false teaching and false teachers. And now he will have a word about the offensive nature of the cross. Because he now is going to ask what is somewhat of a rhetorical question about his own ministry of preaching and persecution. Have you ever thought about that? I used to think that uh, it was preaching and prayer and, and people. And Paul adds another P. Persecution. As he's a faithful minister of the gospel, he's going to endure persecution. Here Paul is asking this question, and, and to be sure, you know, he had uh, Timothy circumcised because it was advantageous in ministry of the Jews. He refused to have Titus um, circumcised because it was being made a condition of salvation. And so, so Paul, once again, is, is going to speak of preaching circumcision and preaching Christ and it's almost as if he's being falsely accused of preaching um, circumcision, but, he, but he's not, because he's being persecuted. If he was preaching circumcision, there would be no opposition. He'd be in lockstep with the false teachers. So to preach circumcision is to tell sinners that they can save themselves through the works. And to preach Christ crucified is to tell sinners that only Christ can save them through the cross. Through the cross, we heard from our New Testament reading that the, the cross is foolishness to Greeks. The cross is foolishness to Gentiles. The cross is a stumbling block. It's a scandal to Jews. Some of you that like original languages would see that this, this um, word, the offense of the cross, it's where we get the word scandal. The cross is not some beautiful, attractive two pieces of wood put together. It was an instrument of death. In the Jewish mind, it was a curse. It's a scandal. It's a scandal. And so the question needs to be asked. Because Paul says, if I'm preaching circumcision then the offense of the cross has been removed. Well, what is the offense of the cross? Why is the cross of Jesus Christ so offensive? How many people do you know that wear a cross around their neck and would have no idea what the Bible has to say about the cross? Hey, if you're wanting a bridge to engage in somebody, ask them why they wear a cross. See where that conversation leads. Why is the cross of Christ offensive? Well, the cross is not flattering. The cross is opposed to the pride of man. People hate to be told that they have to go to the cross. People hate to be told that they can only be saved at the foot of the cross. And they oppose the preacher who tells them so. Paul is being opposed by these false teachers. The cross is not only not flattering, the cross is charity. It is opposed to the pride of man. The cross makes it known that we are poor, we are needy, and we are unable to do anything for ourselves. The cross is charity? Are you kidding? 
That's something for nothing, something for free. I am not a charity case, right? Deep down, I think most of us really want to earn it. Well, maybe not actively work for it to earn it, because hey, some of us are lazy, right? We don't want to work, but we nonetheless want it because we somehow think we deserve it. We merit it. I think it's interesting, uh, Sproul in his lecture this morning did not say this, but I've heard him say a number of times that a lot of people believe in justification by death. Everybody goes to heaven. Everybody deserves it. The cross makes that crystal clear that that is not the case. Turn with me back to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel. Jesus has... Just heard Peter answer the question, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And then for the third time, Jesus talks about going to the cross. In Mark 8, verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. It's interesting how Mark the narrator adds that. And he said this plainly. In other words, you couldn't miss it. And what do we read as we continue? And Peter took him, that is Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. In other words, Peter didn't see the necessity of Jesus going to the cross. Peter did not see that Jesus would need to to bear the wrath of God, to be cursed so that he could be blessed. Peter loved Jesus and he wanted to keep Jesus from the cross. And here's Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can't you see that in Paul's attitude toward the false teachers? A little bit of that anger and indignation? Preaching the cross, preaching the gospel of free grace in Christ leads to persecution from those who can't handle the truth. Some of you may be familiar with that scene in the courtroom. You can't handle the truth. What did Rob say as he introduced one of the hymns? We need to know who God is and who we are, the truth about God and the truth about man in order to respond, in order to receive. The truth is that we are so sinful that only the grace of God could save us. The cross offends people because they don't want to admit that they need someone else to save them. You guys have been in the car before, right? Before the advent of GPS, right? Your wife told you, hey, honey, break out the map. And you're like, no, I know where I'm going. Right? No. You didn't know where you were going and you were afraid to ask for directions and ask for help. That's a simple, trivial matter. How about being right with God? How about knowing that you're secure in eternity forever with the Lord? That's a big deal that is not trivial. 
The cross offends people because they don't want to admit that they need someone else to save them. And look at Paul's anger in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Here's an aspect of Paul's love, and we've seen it before in chapter 1 about if you're preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. He's opposing Peter because it's a threat to the gospel. He's calling the Galatians foolish at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul here has a deep love for the gospel of God and for the people of God. The warmness of his heart and the roughness of his denunciation are here together in his words and language. If circumcision helps, Paul is saying, then why not go all the way? As we've said before, circumcision is minor surgery, but it's a major issue. Paul says, go all the way, make it clear that you are representing an entirely different religion than Christianity. Paul here could be in this particular time and place referring to this, these cults, these pagan cults in the area that practiced some form of, of flesh mutilization. They would mutilate the flesh. But more likely, it's a reference to what he says. Emasculate themselves. Other translations, castration. If you all were to turn to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, we read these words, that no one who's castrated shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The false teaching that comes from false teachers is deadly serious. Timothy George in his commentary writes this, any community of faith that is unwilling to recognize and to reject perversions of the gospel when they crop up in their midst has lost its right to bear witness to the transforming message of Jesus Christ who declared himself to be not only the way and the life but also the truth, the only truth that leads to the Father. That's Paul's attitude. If a little bit helps, then go all the way because he knows that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. But the only thing that counts is faith working through love. I want to end or get to the end here with a final word from John Stott. I hope you're going to be able to read the something to think about quote that comes from his book, The Cross of Christ. In his commentary on Galatians, Stott summarizes verses 1 through 12 like this. Circumcision stands for a religion of human achievement, of what man can do by his own good works. Christ stands for a religion of divine achievement, of what God has done through the finished work of Christ. Circumcision means law, works, and bondage. Christ means grace, faith, and freedom. Every man must choose. The one impossibility is what the Galatians were attempting, namely to add circumcision to Christ and to have both. No, he says, circumcision and Christ are mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. Paul is saying, continue as it were to choose Christ. My friends, our text before us is both a warning and an encouragement. And both the warning and the encouragement come out of confidence in the Lord. 
So let me ask all of us this morning, where is your confidence located? Is your confidence in yourself? Is your confidence in someone else? Is your confidence in you and what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do? Or is your confidence in someone else, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he has promised to do? My friends, to see Jesus dying on the cross in our place and on our behalf destroys confidence in ourselves. To see Jesus dying on the cross in our place and on our behalf establishes and sustains confidence in the Lord. Indeed, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ crucified is indeed offensive. The cross of Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, both the religious and the irreligious, it's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Congregation, for the believer, there is no confusion but only clarity when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. For it is beneath the cross that we find a place to stand, confident and assured to keep running the race all the way to the finish line. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this section in this letter, this, oh, by the way, this aside, for in it, again, we find encouragement through your word. We find endurance to keep running. Oh, Father, help us to ourselves continue to be aligned to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of justification by faith, and help us to either gently or firmly. Oh, Father, give us the wisdom to know the difference. Let us encourage others who seem to be off course to fix their eyes upon the cross. Oh, Father, we thank you that by granting us new hearts, you have enabled us to see the cross as something attractive, and not repulsive, something that we run to and not run from. Father, keep us beneath the cross of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.